0: Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. We pray that you will be greatly blessed as you listen to this sermon, delivered verse by verse by Pastor-teacher Ben Dowdy. Join us as we are pointed to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in God's Holy Word.
1: How many of you uh, sent out a family Christmas picture this season? Can I see your hand? Okay, one. And I think I received that. Wow. When we, when we had six kids at home, we used to do it every year. That was a big deal. Let me ask you this. How many of you sent out a family photo at Christmas or somewhere in that in the last five years. Does that increase the number of hands? This isn't a very uh, photo-friendly church. (laughs) Anyway, uh, if you're the de la penas, I wonder, have you ever struggled to get everybody uh, to smile for the same picture? How about that? I think we're getting closer. And, and I think in, in today's world, you can Photoshop, right? So if you, if you get one kid that's just really grumpy or bawling, you know, maybe the, the photographer can edit that a little bit and the final product can be a bit uh, cleaner. Well, what I want us to do is look at the family photo album of Christ in uh, Matthew chapter 1. It is a section that if you... Uh, Start a new New Testament Bible reading plan, and by the way, Doug is, is encouraging us to get on board with that for 2020, and you'll be hearing more about that possibly as soon as next week. Uh, you start off with Matthew chapter 1, and you run into a bunch of names that are difficult to pronounce, and uh, so that's kind of an odd way because you start off Genesis you're introduced to the existence of God and this grand announcement that God spoke the universe out of nothing, into existence out of nothing. And you get to the New Testament and uh, it starts off with this laundry list of Hebrew names that you're like, huh? I'm not naming my grandchild that. I hope my daughter doesn't name him that. Um, What is this all about? And, And so I want us to consider Portraits of grace from the Messiah's family tree today. I think that we would all say that in older generations, a, uh, a genealogy was the way that a family represented their pedigree. People would even occasionally tweak their genealogy. Herod the Great apparently removed some names from his past (laughs) we tend to put our genealogy out there as something to be proud of if you have an axe murderer in your in your past you tend to you know go skip that one if you've got a senator or you know somebody famous that's well liked then you sort of applaud that Uh, because your genealogy represents those who bring you honor And I want you to notice who the Holy Spirit puts in the genealogy of the Messiah before the birth announcement of Christ, beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now think about this. I know that we have college and high school students here. Uh, If you went to college A and you flunked out, and you went to college B and you aced it, which college is going to likely go on your resume as you search for a job? You, you know, you're going to conveniently skip over on college A, right? You can edit that, but you want to bring in college B. We, we tend to bring up the aspects of things that make us look good. But that is not the case with the family tree of Christ. And, and even though we look at these names and it's... Uh, a lot of names that we don't connect with, there are many valuable lessons to be learned. And so I want us to focus in on a couple of very interesting aspects of the Messiah's family tree. Let's start in verse one. We'll kind of pick and chew on it, verses one to six, and then maybe mention verse 16. But it starts off this way, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew, writing to Jews, is establishing the kingship of the Messiah. And so it's very important that he connects Jesus with the two great icons of Jewish history. The founder of the Jews, Abraham, and their greatest king, David. It says that Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now let's stop right there. Let's take a snapshot, and now let's move back, and if you're looking for uh, where I'm drawing this from, I want you to think about Jacob, just as an example from the Messiah's genealogy. Jacob's family photo. If he's posting on an ancient Instagram his family picture, this is what it's going to look like. So let's think about this. And I'm getting this, if you want to jot down the chapters, you can go back and research the story. It's Genesis 25, 27, 29, and 30. But the first thing that we notice is that Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. His father was Isaac. His grandpappy, pappy is what my grandchildren call me, was Abraham. And Jacob and his twin brother Esau were born to Isaac and Rebekah. The very name Jacob meant trickster, supplanter, deceiver, grabber, heel grabber. And Jacob seemed to spend his entire lifetime living out the very meaning of his name, Jacob. In midlife, he began his life of deception by beating his twin brother Esau out of his birthright. Later on, when it came time for Isaac the dad to pass on his patriarchal blessing to his firstborn son, Esau had come out before Jacob, even though they were twins, Again, Jacob saw his opportunity to cheat his brother out of what was rightfully his. And so he teamed up with his mom. Moms, you never play favorites, right? Well, they had their mother-son thing, and she helped him cheat his brother out of his blessing. And it says in Genesis that Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and he took away my blessing. And so guess what? Brotherly love starts floating around. Esau decides to kill his brother Jacob. Rebekah learns about that, and she sends Jacob away to his uncle Laban. Uh, Many, many miles, 450 miles to Haran, where he meets Laban. And I think the reason that God allowed Jacob to go live with with, um, with Laban is because Laban was a bigger trickster than Jacob was. And so he's to, about to get out-tricked by someone that's a better deceiver than he is. And so the first thing that he does when he, meet, when he gets there is he falls in love uh, with, with a young lady named Rachel. In fact, when he met her, he cries. And uh, many believe that was just love at first sight. And basically he's thinking, I've got to have this woman for my wife. (laughs) He's got no money. He's run for his life. His brother wants to kill him. And so he goes to Laban, Uncle Lab, right? He says, hey, you want Rachel? You work for me for seven years. How many of you guys would work for your wife for seven years? Don't answer that, okay? So Jacob, you know, he readily agrees to that. That wasn't a problem. It was like nothing to him because he loved Rachel so much. But at the end of that time, he goes into Laban. He said, hey, Uncle Lab, I paid my dues. Give me what is rightfully mine. And so they have this massive marriage ceremony, right? in this huge party. And sometimes their feast would last for up to a week. And then the the bridegroom would be escorted to the tent of the bride and the marriage would be consummated. And so Jacob gets escorted by Uncle Lab to a tent and inside is a woman with a beautiful veil over her face. And he goes in and goes to bed with his new wife. Now here's what the Holy Spirit says about that. Listen to this. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. He worked seven years to get Rachel, and he wakes up from the dark, and there's Leah. What's up with that? His marriage is consummated, and he's married to the wrong woman. Wow. So now his family photo includes Leah. So he goes to Laban and he says, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why have you deceived me? But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. You think that might have come back on Jacob's conscience? Woo! Birthright, blessing, tricking bro. The one that wanted to kill him, right? (laughs) Big time conscience struggle here. And so... uh, (laughs) He goes on, Laban does, he says, you complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Laban did that and he completed her week, or Jacob did that, he completed her week and he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. So Jacob went into Rachel also and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Now think about this family photo album. You have a guy married to two sisters. He is about to discover the wonderful experience of being married to two women who are sisters. Now, I want to make a side comment here. We're not going to take the time to get into the background of Old Testament polygamy, except to say this. Wherever you see it, you always see trouble. Just note that. And so the family Instagram photo album grows. Leah has four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. In an Old Testament culture, the the thing that gave a woman her worth, her value, was the ability to have children, to bear children. And if she couldn't have children, it was like the worst thing in the world. And so Rachel, who is married to Jacob, she is barren. She cannot have kids. And this is really hard and heavy on her heart. And so Genesis 30 indicates this. Now when Rachel saw that she, Leah, bore Jacob, or that she, Rachel, bore no children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And so it's a crazy thing. You can read about it in Genesis 31 to 13. But first of all, uh, Bilha, Rachel's handmaid, bears Dan and Naphtali. And then, so you have, what, six boys there and then uh, Leah's handmaid, Zilpah, she has Gad and Asher. Jacob must have been a very, very busy man. And so one day, Reuben, uh, that is Leah's oldest son, is, he's out in the field and he finds some mandrakes, some translations call them love apples, and they're supposed to make a barren woman fertile. And... and so Rachel finds out, and she goes to Leah, and she says, I've tried everything to have children, and I still have not been able to do that. Let me have some of the mandrakes. Genesis thirty fifteen says, But she said to her, Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, Therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. I mean, Hollywood doesn't make this stuff up this good right? This is real life, God's chosen people kind of stuff. And so they agree, and Leah has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. And so look at this. You've got two wives, uh, two uh, maid servants, and now you're up to 10 boys, okay? Can you imagine their family Christmas, if they had Christmas, which they didn't obviously, but just kind of picture that, And so after Rachel had tried all of her manipulative tactics and everything she could, here's what the scripture says. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. And here's a lesson for us. God is the one who opens the womb and allows us to have children. What a gift. And it says that she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. He named him Joseph saying, may the Lord give me another son. And later on, she has a second son and named him Benjamin. Um, And just to kind of fill out Jacob's family photo, Leah has a daughter, Dinah. Can you imagine being Dinah with 12 brothers from four different moms? Can you actually imagine what that might have been like? When the arguments started, well, you came from the love apples. Daddy didn't even want you. You know, I mean, can you imagine how they pitted that against each other? Knowing what we know about human nature, it must have been bizarre. You're not a real son. You were born to a handmaid. <laughs> and so when you weigh in the competition between Leah and Rachel and throw in the two handmaids, there was all of this hostility that went on here. Now, go back to. Matthew chapter 1. So that's just one uh, picture. But I want you to notice a few other pictures. It goes on in verse 3, and it says, Judah was the father of Perez, or if they were from El Paso, Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Circle the word Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Noshin, and Noshin the father of Salmon. Verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Circle the word Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Circle Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by... And here's the literal translation of verse 6. Her of Uriah. Literally, it doesn't even name her. It just says, her of Uriah. So you have... And then if you jump down to verse 16, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So circle the word Mary in verse 16. So you have five women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. So what do we do with that? Well, I think there are so many lessons. Because, ladies, I hate to break this to you, but in those days, culturally, women were not important. They were considered gender outsiders. It was highly unusual for a woman's name to be mentioned in a Jewish genealogy because names and inheritances came through the fathers. Women were ignored in the family trees. Often they didn't count. All that mattered, as hard as it is for our ears to hear, is the father and the son or the sons. The other thing that we see here in these five women is that several of them are Gentiles, not Jews. So they are cultural outsiders. Think about names like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. You have Canaanites. You have Moabites. I mean, you look at Ruth, and she was a wonderful, godly, amazing woman. But she had a stigma on her that she was a Moabitess. They were disallowed from the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, for up to 10 generations. And in Psalms, God calls the Moabites his washbowl. You know how they got started? You know how they got started? Lot's wife goes into a pillar of salt. His two daughters say, hey, man, we're not going to have a child to pass on. And so on consecutive nights, they get dad drunk. They go in and have intimacy with their own dad, and they give birth to children crazy, Moabites and Canaanites, not allowed into the holy place, not allowed into the tabernacle. They were considered spiritually unclean, but furthermore, these ladies were moral outsiders. If you were to to, to put it in a movie today, uh, there would be a warning, sexual content, adults only, at minimum, Uh, because it seems that Matthew through God-breed scripture, pays attention to the fact that there is incest and prostitution and adultery, all of which are in the family tree of Christ. It says that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You're talking about an incestuous act. You're talking about a daughter-in-law whose father-in-law didn't take care of her in Jewish culture when she lost her husband properly. And she knew the character of her father-in-law enough to know that if she posed as a prostitute, she could get him to come off the beaten path and have intimacy with her. And indeed, that is what happened. So it was an act of incest. It was against the law of God, against the Mosaic law. And yet, it's right there in the genealogy of Christ. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. So you have gender outsiders, cultural outsiders, moral outsiders, and racial outsiders. You remember what the Jewish male would pray every day? God, I thank you that you didn't make me a Gentile or a woman. Wow. You think we have racism today? Oh, man, we do. But it hasn't just started since slavery. It's been going on since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so you have the law of Moses precluding these people from the very presence of God, an illegitimate child, a prostitute, Canaanites. Why is Jesus owning these people? Why? I think he brings women into the genealogy to show that the status of women will be forever changed by the coming of the Messiah. If, if Christmas means anything, it means that things like status and pedigree and position mean nothing in here, in the family of God, the family of Christ, nothing. Genesis or Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You see, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done it doesn't matter where you've been living the last 10 years as long as you're clean today the love of and the grace of God goes through anyone and everyone you see people excluded by culture the law of Moses Jesus takes them in it doesn't matter how low you are on the totem pole Doesn't matter your pedigree, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, the grace of Jesus can cover you. His value is very different. The world values pedigree and money and race and class and Jesus turns all of that on its head and in his church the things that are important out there are not so important in here. And I think what you see, if you go back, does anybody here have a King James version? (coughs) If you look at that, it's like he beget, he beget. You know what the begets in in Matthew 1, 1 to 17 are dripping with grace and love and mercy. Jesus is saying you have an honored place in my kingdom and my family. This is Christmas, God in a manger, God in the manure. And you know what that does if you are in Christ? And we'll talk about that in a minute. That does a world of good for your feelings of inferiority. Do you know the honor of being a Christian? That he sings over you? He puts you in a place of honor. It changes the way you look at people around you. Relationships and friendships are based on things other than pedigree and money and status and backgrounds. Those things matter out in the world. I get that. They don't matter in here. You are a Christian first, and whatever else you are military, civilian, you ride motorcycles, you like uh, knitting, it doesn't matter in here. Doesn't matter in here. You see, the genealogy is like the manger. It doesn't look like much on the outside, but on the inside, it's rich with treasure. Now, you know, the most interesting of all (laughs) may not be Jacob and his family Christmas picture. Or even the five women in the genealogy, it might be David. It might just be David. Look at David. Royalty, not a prostitute. The king. No higher position in the ancient Near Eastern world than being a monarch. And yet, look at it. Verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king, the greatest king of the Old Testament. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had, I should say, by her of Uriah. I think think that's the literal translation. I don't even think Bathsheba's name is actually mentioned there. And you you want royalty on your resume. Wouldn't you like to come up and tell me that you have a king in your past? You want royalty in your resume. But Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He went to the front lines of battle for David. Some people believe that Uriah was one of the dudes that came alongside and helped David when he was running for his life from King Saul. He was like the real-life Harrison Ford, the fugitive, on the run. You see all that way through the... The, the second part of 1 Samuel. And so you have these mighty men, fugitives, with him. Uriah may have been one of them. And when Uriah became king, he arranged to have Uriah killed. There's a great epitaph on David's tombstone, inspired by the Spirit of God. It's in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. Listen to it. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, listen to this, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Wow. And if you go through the story of David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, who was at that time Uriah's wife, you never see Bathsheba's name mentioned until chapter 12, verse 24. She was the wife, the wife of Uriah. And in the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. So what is that telling you? What is the family tree of Jesus telling us this morning? It tells us that David is a guy, not a gal. He's royalty, not a commoner. Yet he does something worse than any of the women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. And yet he's there. (laughs) Not even the greatest doesn't need the grace of Christ. And not even the worst can't fail to receive the grace of Christ. In Jesus, prostitute and king sit down as equals. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, all the same. If you accept the good news, if you believe in Christ, if you receive the gift of Christmas, you sit at the table, a place of honor, with Christ as your elder brother. Listen to this in Hebrews 2, verse 11. It says, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. So let's think about some takeaways from the family tree. And I realize we've only looked at a few portraits, a few snippets. There are stories within stories. But let's think about some lessons we can take. The first thing I would have you note is that grace humbles the proud and exalts the lowly. Grace humbles The proud and exalts the lowly. If you look down at the birth announcement of Christ, notice in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1 she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. And then in verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. Now, what do you think all of that together tells us? It tells us this, that if you think that grace is a cooperative effort between you and God, you're trying to tweak your resume. Because every single person in this room has a few things that he or she is ashamed of. And if you're not, some things that you should be ashamed of. And so if you think it's meeting God halfway, bringing your 10% goodness to his 90 or 100% righteousness, you don't understand the first thing about grace. The first thing that we see is not only that he is God, but he is God with us that Jesus broke through the slab of, of the concrete that separated ideal and perfect from the real and broken. Because behind every one of us in our Christmas garb this season is brokenness and hurt and heartache, all of us. There's not one family and there is not one person that doesn't have a few things that he or she is ashamed of. And yet Jesus broke through into our brokenness in the form of a baby rocking in his virgin mother's arms. He grew up with his half-brothers and sisters. He trained under his, bio, his not his biological father, because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but through Joseph, her husband, as a carpenter. And all through that, the miracle of Christmas is that He, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Basically, Christmas is this I'm going, Jesus saying, to begin a human existence in a feeding trough with an unwed mother. And why did He do that? So that He would save His people from their sins. There's a wonderful verse that shows us the greatest exchange in the Bible. The exchange of my sin for his righteousness, my bills for his deposits, my shame and brokenness and nakedness for being clothed in him, And it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. I would encourage you to write it down and celebrate it on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and every day through. That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's say that this is me. This is Ben. This represents my brokenness. My sin. My shame. My sins of omission. Things I should have done and said and thought that I didn't and commission things that I did that I shouldn't have all of it all of it in the past all of it in the present all of it in the future and let's say that the back of this outline represents the perfect life of Emmanuel Jesus the God man that when he was in his two-year time frame he was never terrible he never threw a tantrum he never talked back to his earthly parents that when he was in his adolescent And uh, teenage years, he never once was impure. He never once was surly. He never once was in a bad mood in a sinful way. He never once was angry or sinfully fearful or all about himself. And in his 20s, he was absolutely pleasing to the Father every single moment. He says, I always do what pleases the Father. And so if you look at Jesus' resume, it is nothing but absolute perfection. There was no deceit in his mouth, no sin in him. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, never offered a single sacrifice for his own sins. That's the resume of Jesus. My resume, different story. I owe a debt I could not pay. But in the great exchange of the gospel, when Jesus, around the age of 33, hung on a cross, he took my sin and he paid for it in full. And so that when I repent of my self-righteousness, of my religiosity, of my goodness, of my badness, and I by faith trust in Jesus as my savior, confess him as my king, God at that moment begins to treat me, Ben Dowdy, as if I had lived the perfect life of Jesus. So when God looks at me today he doesn't see me like this. He sees me robed in the righteousness of another. You see that's the good news. You don't get grace. You don't understand grace. You don't get the good news of the gospel until you get this. That he became my sin on the cross without for a second being sinful. And that He became my righteousness the moment I trust in him alone. Not him plus, not him minus, but him only, always. That is the good news. That is the good news that saves. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. If you aren't sure where you stand with Christ, I would encourage you, to call on his name right now and ask him to save you. You don't have to come up here, you can. You don't have to pray out loud, you can. But just tell him in the privacy of your heart, Lord, I do believe. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. That is the good news of the gospel. Now I want you also to consider this lesson from the family tree of the Messiah and these portraits of grace, that no one should be proud of his own righteousness and wisdom. And that's why we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Uh, Not many of you, Paul says to the Corinthians, were wise by human standards, were mighty by human standards when God chose you. God does call. Some famous people, whether they be in the political world, in the musical world, in the athletic world, in the educational world, God does choose some that are mighty in the eyes of men, but not many. For the most part, the people that God chooses to save, to come alive to the message of the cross so that it's an aroma of life unto life to them and not a stench of death unto death to them are people that are not mighty and they're not noble. That's most of us. And why did he do that? So that no one can boast in his own wisdom or his own righteousness. But let him who boast, boast in the Lord. We were made to be awe-seekers. We live for the thrill of the moment. You are going to glory in something, whether it's sport, whether it's Instagram likes, whether it's your looks, whether it's your your money, your bank account, whatever it is, you are going to glory in something. We were never made to sit empty. And God created us, and he chose us, and he saves us to glory in Jesus. You see, no one should be proud of his own righteousness and wisdom. You know, if you had looked, and if I had looked for some notable women in the family tree of Christ... I think we might have started with Eve and Sarah. Maybe a little bit Rebecca and Leah. I don't think Tamar. And I don't think a prostitute from Jericho. And certainly not her of Uriah, Bathsheba. But Jesus, the Holy Spirit chose Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. You have three Canaanites and one adulterous Jewish woman. You have incest and prostitution and adultery and harlotry. How would that make you feel if you're not a Jew? <laughs> Are there any sinners here this morning? If you're a Jew and you're praying daily, I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile or a woman In other prayers like that, that was like a daily prayer. This deals a death blow to their pride. But here's the good news. The same God that can lower the proud can take the Tamars of this world and raise them to glory. How can that happen? How can that be? Because they put their faith in a conqueror, Rahab did. Ruth did through Boaz. They put their faith in a king, Bathsheba did, in a Messiah, Tamar did. What bride of the Bible do you know that was totally condemned as a Gentile with a few Jews sprinkled in there, that were headed for hell and are now bound for heaven because they married a Jewish conqueror, a Jewish prince, a Jewish Messiah. The church, ecclesia, called out assembly, this body of Christ that is held up before the watching human world and the watching angel world, and we're in awe that a former KKK member and a former Black Panther could sit down at the Lord's table together and partake that a cowboy and indian could sit down together at a table together and partake and the angel world according to Ephesians 3 looks at that and they're going huh woo that's crazy <laughs> Listen, if you're a Gentile and if you're in Christ, you are Tamar, you are Rahab. You are a Moabite. But no matter how worthless you've ever felt, God can raise you. He can raise you. It doesn't matter how lowly you are. It doesn't matter how high you are. It doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person, in the eyes of the world, what matters is if you're willing to marry the right Jew. I'm not talking about physical, biological marriage. I'm talking about a prince, a messiah, a king, out of this family tree. His name is Jesus. He is called in Revelation the lion of the tribe of Judah. I wanna close with this as we think about the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of grace, and as we look at this fact that no one here should despair on account of your sin or your stained resume, whether that be a personal resume or a family resume, whether that be a spouse, a son, a daughter, a parent, an uncle, an aunt, whatever it is, Wherever your Instagram family photo album needs to be photoshopped and you draw back in despair. Guys, gals, the gospel is the good news that frees us from that feeling of despair and inferiority. And I'm quoting here from a book by Dave Harvey and Paul Gilbert called Letting Go, Rugged Love for Wayward Souls. And he makes this comment. He says that shame begins to lose its power when we expose it to the bright rays of the gospel. He says we we need to replace the story of shame in our past with the true story, the gospel. The gospel tells you, listen to this, that you are a child of God. The story of shame says that your sins are too great. The gospel says that all of your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. Shame says that you stink as a spouse or a parent. The gospel says, yes, you are sin heavy and mistake prone. But with Jesus, you always have a second chance. Shame says there's no hope for you. The gospel says that because you're in Christ, God has made extraordinary promises about your future. Shame wants to rewrite your story, redefine your identity, give you a name tag. But the gospel speaks the truth about who you are, branding you with Christ's perfect name. You can begin to lay aside the false narratives you speak to yourself by understanding what God thinks about you. The gospel reveals a love so great that God sent his son to rescue us from our sinful corruption. Shame runs deep, he goes on to say. It fits the circumstances around us and describes the relational destruction we see. But we got to ask, is it true? The gospel goes deeper than our shame. It tells us that we are far worse than our shame suggests, but that we are far more loved than we could understand. The only way to dry up the roots of shame is by constantly and consistently unearthing these roots and exposing them to the light of the gospel. Isn't that good news? Beloved, that is the good news. Not all of Christmas season, but every single day. You know, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? You say, well, yeah, I come in here to preach Pastor Ben or whoever is speaking. The biggest person you listen to is your own thoughts. And what we need to do is preach the good news. To ourself amen
0: praise the lord that his word is sufficient for our every need join us next time as we continue our study of god's infallible word we would also love to have you join us at grace bible fellowship we meet together each sunday from 9 a.m to 10 a.m for connections and 10 a.m to 12:30 for our worship service we are located at 1385 northwestern drive on the west side of El Paso, along with our hosting sister church, Missión de Gracia. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-861-6900 or visit our website at gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.